All right, everybody. Um, so if you would, turn to Romans chapter 1. Um, it is going to be our primary text today, but as you all well know, it will not be our only text today. Um, we, uh, we have just finished a series on, uh, on the doctrines of grace, where we went through these various aspects and understandings of the gospel. Uh, and the idea was so that we would have such a clear understanding of the good news that we would proclaim it with great clarity. You will recall uh, that in that sermon series, uh, we had this huge focus on the need for Christ to redeem us. And you might also recall that we were teaching, in the, in the Great Commission, it, we're taught to teach people what God has commanded. One of those things we are commanded is to worship him. And so we're going to begin this series on worship. And the idea is not merely to talk about musical worship. The idea is to talk about what it means to worship God with the whole of my being. So in it, we will address what it is like to worship and the, the theology behind our corporate worship. We'll talk about family worship and the importance of that. We'll talk about individual worship. Um, but today, it, think of this as like a prolegomena where we are going to go through key principles related to worship so we have a good understanding of what this is and what we're supposed to do. Because, as we'll see, this is why we're here, brothers and sisters. It is to bring God glory. So, a couple of key principles as you're turning to Romans chapter 1. Uh, and the first is that we were made for worship. And, as we'll see more clearly coming along the way, Worship and service, that is worship and obedience, go together. You can't really separate the two. In fact, as we look at the Old Testament, many times when someone would come into the presence of a king, they would not merely bow down in reverence, but they would call themselves the servant of the king. And the idea then of paying homage and serving go directly together. Um, so in Romans chapter 11, verse 36, it says, For him, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Hopefully you understand the idea is that everything exists by God, for God, to God. Everything is about his glory. Second, we see in 1 Corinthians 10.31, it says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. The idea is that every function of my daily life should be done to the glory of God. That means worship is a part of even the most basic of functions in my life. In Luke 4, 8, Jesus, when he is being tempted by Satan, says this. He says, and Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Notice that connection between worship and service. They go together and only God is to get them. Interestingly enough, in when Jesus is speaking to his disciples in John 14, 15, he actually says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Notice this same idea. If Jesus is to be loved and worshiped as God, he should be obeyed as God. And so whether you're looking at Old Testament or New Testament, whether you're looking at the epistles or the gospels, you are seeing, hopefully, that Jesus is to be worshiped and obeyed. They go together. So I'm just going to reiterate this point. We serve what we worship. If you want to give homage to something or someone, you are going to be serving them in obedience. 
And our allegiance is attested not merely by our lip service. Our allegiance is attested by what we do. As we'll see, this is going to come into great, greater importance um, in a couple of minutes. Um, but I want to point this out because this means that if I am giving service and obedience to someone who is in direct opposition to the truth of God, I am giving them worship. And I should caution myself that I am to obey and serve God alone. And in so much as God has placed governing authorities and parents over household, I should obey them, and in doing so, I am obeying God. But in the moment that they stray away from the commands of God, I am required by my allegiance to God to worship him instead. So interestingly enough, this is built into catechisms. Give me a, one more click. There we go. Um, this is built into catechisms. You'll see in Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, which our Presbyterian brothers and sisters might be very familiar with, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, um, what is the chief end of man? And the answer then is man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. You'll also note, and I'm going to ask this question for the kids. So kids, are you listening? How and why did God create us? God created us male and female in his own image to glorify him. Now, we could go through a whole lot of, we could go through Keech's catechism and some others. You will notice that a central theme is that man exists for God's glory. And often you'll see this mention that part of that is us delighting in him. Interesting. So all that said, this has all been set up here. Let's look at Romans chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 16. Many of you know Romans is, is kind of Paul's magnum opus. It is a systematic theology that covers a whole lot of things. And after his introductions, he opens the body of the message, the body of the letter, with this. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now notice something about this. This is something that gets left out so often. That when Paul is talking about the gospel, central to it is not merely that I experience salvation. It's what the gospel does. But the central focus of the gospel is God's righteousness being revealed. And we're so quick to talk about, yay, salvation is about me getting saved. And it's like, no, that's great. The gospel is wonderful. You're saved when you repent and believe it. But it's not about you. The gospel is about God's righteousness being revealed. Notice then, about his glory. Just as we have said, all things are to him, for him, from him. Even the gospel is about God's glory. So more on that later. Another little side note, actually, before I move on. This message of the righteous living by faith. We'll kind of see this theme come up often in, in different language, different places. But the idea of that I am to worship in spirit and in truth. Notice even here we've got this a little bit. The truth is God's righteousness revealed, that I am to worship God as he has revealed himself. Specifically here, it's related to his righteousness. But then I'm supposed to do it by faith. And we know that without God's regeneration, we don't have faith. So there's this idea that my spirit has to be alive. 
So even here, very subtly, Paul is weaving in this idea of worship being done in spirit and in truth. We'll see it in greater detail in John 4. All that said, let's look at verse 18, because everything gets shaken up in verse 18. Paul begins with, hey, the gospel, and it's great. And then he's like, I'm going to lay the hammer down on you wretched sinners. So verse 18, he says this, for the wrath of God, notice that's a logical transition word. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now remember, the gospel is about God's glory, specifically related to his righteousness being revealed. And so notice the contrast here, the unrighteous are suppressing the truth. God is supposed to receive glory in worship. The unrighteous are suppressing the truth in an effort to rob him of glory. Whether they cognitively recognize it or not, it's exactly what they're doing. This is for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. You get this? He's saying that like everybody should be able to look at creation and the beauty and order and say, a strong and wise God made this. But they do just the opposite. So for all they they knew God, notice that, it doesn't say that they didn't know him. It's actually that they knew and suppressed. This is important and is directly related to worship, as we'll see. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Notice what's happening here. Humans are created for worship, as we saw already. Humans will always worship. It it doesn't matter whether you're a believer or a non-believer, you are going to worship something. Even the most die-hard atheist is worshiping something. You will see religiosity in every human being. Now, whether that takes the form of idolatry as we think of it in actual carved images, or whether it takes the form of idolatry in statism, that would be the worship of the state, or in maybe pleasure of some sort, in the idolatry of self. Maybe it takes the form of some neo-paganism. The truth is we're seeing, the further our culture gets away from God, the more that we're seeing even old forms of idolatry coming back up. The idea, though, is in any case, every human is going to worship something. Good old Bob Dylan's famous line is, you got to serve somebody. Um, Very much so seen here. Notice That this is all done in an effort to suppress the truth of God. This is not people who are ignorant of God. No one is. These are people who suppress the truth about God. So reading on in verse 24, it says, Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Notice God says, okay, if you are going to suppress the truth about me and you're going to worship my creation instead of worshiping me who made it, then I am going to give you over to the foolishness and debauchery that comes with that. 
This is serious because one of the most painful things that can be done is for God to just let us do what we want to do in our sin. In fact, scripture is clear that God is continually restraining evil. When God lets loose the evil that he has been restraining, things go really bad really fast. And so here we see it. Verse 26 says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. It's very clearly communicating the fact that homosexuality, forms of gender dysphoria, are not merely sins. They're actually punishments in themselves. They're sin, but the idea here is that this is when things have gotten so bad that God is actually moving, removing his, his hands and saying, okay, if that's what you want to do, do it. Because it is a punishment in itself. All of the good gifts that come with biblical marriage, all of the protection and the safety, all of the blessings, the children, there's prosperity built into it. All of that goes away. And God is essentially saying, okay, if that's what you, if, you're, if your idolatry is going to go to that level and you're going to be that suppressed in the truth, I'm going to let it happen. This should be sobering to us, by the way, because the reality is he doesn't stop here. It's very easy for, for us, those of us who are heterosexual, to say like, yep, that's really bad sin. It's a sign of all that's gone on. He doesn't stop there. So reading on, verse 28, it says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. The list is continuing. He says, They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. Does that sound familiar? This should sober us to some degree because these are things that I see very much in our culture. Obviously, the last thing we see in our culture we're seeing envy, covetousness, malice. These things that, by the way, are direct violations to very specific commandments of God. And we're seeing manifested in this culture right now. It says they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips. How interesting that gossip gets thrown right in here with murder and homosexuality and everything else. Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. I think we're seeing that too. Disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though Notice this. It says, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Oh. You notice that all of this started when humans began worshiping the creation rather than the creator. And there is this snowball effect of negative things that happen where God just slowly says, okay, I'm giving you over a little more. I'm giving you over a little more. If that's what you want to do, receive the due punishment in itself. And we could say that this is, uh, this is a description of humanity in general. I think that fits. 
we could say that this same kind of thing seems to happen in a culture. The more it abandons the truth of God, we see these things manifest more and more. I think there's a reason why certain cultures, we see more of this than others. The further we get away from worship to God, the closer we get to these things. Great way to introduce a sermon on worship, by the way, to talk first about all of the idolatry and mess that comes with this. Um, Now, we've already said this, but I'm just going to reiterate. You will worship something. Um, You are either going to worship the creator in what we would call faithful worship. Notice how I made that into two words. Like, worship that is filled with faith. Um, I learned that from uh, my favorite professor, Dr. Morrison. Uh, He'll make up words to communicate a theological truth a little bit better. Uh, He'll talk about the word of God being contentful. Um, The idea here of faithful worship. Not just faithful It is full of faith. That is biblical worship. Either you will worship the creator in faithful worship, or you will worship the creation and engage in some form of idolatry. It is one or the other. So as we're going to see here, idolatry is going to lead to degeneration of some sort. We've already mentioned it to some degree. I just want to point out, it mentions homosexuality and transgenderism of some sort, and then it mentions just general debased mind and debased act. Those two things pretty much cover a whole lot of ground and a culture and a people that are broken. I always like to point out this, because every now and then people think, oh no, that means if I have same-sex attraction, it's over for me. I have no hope. Let me just encourage you, in 1 Corinthians 6-9, Paul lists almost all the same things, not just the homosexuality, but the malice, the gossip, slander, and he says, such were some of you, you were redeemed. So just because God has given over, and by the way, it doesn't mean that you as an individual have somehow gone to a greater length of degree. The idea is that God's giving over this culture to these things, and they seem to just kind of grow in this culture. Repentance and faith can redeem anyone, anyone, just making sure that that's clear. Idolatry will lead to a degeneration of a whole lot of things. As we'll see, um, it is never hopeless while you are still breathing. Praise the Lord. All right, so a little focus here. The idea here that we become like what we worship, not just in the degradation, but Psalm 115, 2 through 8, uh, says, why should the nations say, where is their God? Because what was happening is Israel doesn't have idols. Like, God's pretty clear. You're not supposed to have idols. Like, don't make any graven images. So the other nations are like, why aren't you like us? We got gods we can see. And so here they're mocking the people of God. And so he says, why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens, and he does what he pleases. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears that do not hear, ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. This is a big, heavy smack in the face to idolatry. Because what he's saying is, all of these people are mocking us because we don't have deaf, dumb, motionless idols. Why would we worship idols that we make with our own hands? Because our God is in the heavens doing whatever he pleases. He's the God who made all this stuff. We don't have to answer for him. We can merely say, you have deaf, dumb, and mute idols, and those of you who worship them will become exactly like them. A little side note. 
there is something that happens in a culture and in a people and in individuals as they worship something other than God, foolishness increases. Scripture actually says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. In other places it says it's the beginning of wisdom. In fact, from a presuppositionalist perspective, we would say that without a God who has created a world of order, there is no basis for science, there is no basis for morality, and so as a culture abandons the things of God, we see those things kind of fall apart as those who worship them become like them. Um, reading on a little bit further as we're addressing a few of these key principles. Uh, similarly, we say we, you become like what you worship. If you worship idols, you become like idols. Conversely, if you worship God, your mind is renewed. Romans 12:1 and 2 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Notice this. The bodies were used for degrading things in idolatry. Now he's saying in worship, in faithful biblical worship, present your body to God for this godly honoring worship. And then he goes on. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Notice, for the faithful worshiper, his mind is renewed, his body is used to glorify God, or her body is used to glorify God, and then there is this idea that like, now you become knowledgeable of what God's will is, partially because he's revealed it and you're not suppressing it anymore, and the idea is then obedience comes with it. Can you see in Romans 12:1 this contrast to what's happening in Romans 1? In the one, the mind is degraded in idolatry and the body is used in disobedience. In the other, the mind is renewed, the obedience to God comes with it, and God is receiving glory as we worship him. A couple of other interesting... I'm, I'm just kind of getting some key principles in here before we get to the main point, and I promise it's not going to be very long. Worship also involves delight. Another key principle that we want to just keep in mind. We see many times in Scripture... We've already talked about worship and obedience going together. That's, that, that makes sense. Worship and service, I'm obeying that person or that being that I'm, that I'm worshiping. But we also see this idea that worship is a delight. In Psalm 1611, it says, You make known the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The idea that like, when I am delighting in God, I'm actually enjoying my worship. Psalm, 80, Psalm 30, uh, 37.4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. I've seen this verse twisted so many times. I just want to point out, it doesn't mean if you delight in God that he's just going to give you all the material things you want. Although, the truth is, if I'm delighting in God, my mind is being conformed to him, and what I want is what he wants. But the focus here is, I'm delighting in God. Guess who I want? I want him. So he says, if I delight myself in him, he's going to give me the desire of my heart, which is him. Now, I would say that God gives good gifts. That's so clear. Every good and perfect gift comes from him. So as I'm worshiping and delighting in God, yes, he gives us good material gifts. Praise the Lord. That's wonderful. But I would say the focus of this verse is that I'm delighting in him. Focus is him. He's who I delight in. And everything else is a benefit that simply causes me to give him more glory. So, we better get dialed in a little bit on what this word worship means then. Um, there's probably five or six, I don't remember, five or six different words used for worship in Scripture. There could be more than that. In the Old Testament, we see shakah used often, and it simply means to bow down in reverence. 
We also see the word sabazumai, um, which is in the Greek. We see this in the New Testament. I think this is actually what we see in Romans 1. Um, it is the word that means to fear or be afraid of uh, or to honor. It's the idea of deep reverence. And I think sometimes when we talk about fearing God, we say, oh, that's not the same as other fear. And I'm like, yeah, I get that. But also, like, we're supposed to kind of be afraid of God. Like, not in the sense that he's going to bring wrath upon his children, but the idea that, like, he, he's kind of he's huge. He's, he's scary. Like, in, in Chronicles of Narnia, there's the classic thing, like, he's a lion. He's not a tame lion. He's a good lion. You're supposed to be a little bit afraid. Yes, mostly in reverence, not in terror, because he is good and he loves his children. But I better take seriously the fact that he has real wrath and real power, so I better be in obedience to him. Um, so, sabadzamai. Similarly, prosukinesis uh, has a similar idea of this bowing down. It means to kiss the hand. Uh, or among the Persians specifically, it says to, it means to fall on one's knees and touch the ground with the forehead as an expression of profound reverence. And notice that when we see the word worship used in scripture, it seems directly tied to reverence. Uh, as we've already seen, it involves delight and obedience as well. Um, D.A. Carson gives this definition. He says, Worship is ascribing all glory and worth to the creator God precisely because he is worthy. Delightfully so. I actually really like this definition because it weaves in delight, the worthiness of God, and the fact that we are giving him reverence as a result. So we're going to kind of work with that definition a little bit. Um, Another key principle we want to address here is that worship is for God alone. In Luke 4, 8, which we already mentioned, when Jesus is being tempted by the enemy, he's essentially saying, give me a little bit of worship and I will give you everything you want. Which is, by the way, the heart of idolatry. Idolatry is always transactional. It's always like, worship Odin and he's going to not do this. Sacrifice this thing to Thor and your crops are going to grow. It's this transactional thing, which is, by the way, one of the issues I have with a lot of the prosperity gospel movement. There's often, give this money, and then you'll get this thing. That is idolatry at its core. It's bad. Anyway, Jesus answered him and said, it is written, it says, and Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Worship, service, both reserved, alone for God. Revelation 19.10, uh, interesting situation because there's this angel there and he is revealing something to the Apostle John. And in Revelation 19.10, it says, Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Notice what's happening here. And this is a little interesting side note. C.S. Lewis mentioned this once or twice, the idea that like if I saw people as they are, my temptation would be very much to worship them because they are created in the image of God. How interesting that is. Here, this is the Apostle John, arguably the closest of of Jesus' apostles, depending on how you want to count it, but he was close to Jesus. He knew a lot. He's written 
almost as much of the New Testament as Paul has. He's written a lot. He's writing the very last letter of the New Testament here, knows a lot. When he comes into the presence of an angel, his temptation is to worship the angel because it is so glorious. And the angel has to tell him, whoa, don't worship me. This should tell us something about the wonder and beauty of God's creation. He has made it so profound that if we are left unchecked, we will worship things we shouldn't worship. Even the apostle had to be brought into check on that whole thing. But brothers and sisters, let me just give great emphasis here. Worship is for God alone. So Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 8, when God is giving an early initial command for what they're to do, he says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Notice it says a couple of things there. One, here is who God is. He is one God. This is not a polytheistic God. Truth there, by the way. And then he says, you must worship God. You must love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Notice we're getting in this little theme of spirit and in truth. Worship God as he is. He is one. Worship with all you are that's involving worship and spirit. This is in these words I command to you today. You shall take on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign to your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorsteps of your house and on your gates. Do you get what he's saying here? The worship that is reserved for God as he is should permeate your life to such a degree that it is everywhere. I don't think it means we need to physically write it on our wrists and foreheads, but maybe. Actually, there are some who who believe that. But the idea was that it's supposed to be everywhere. When someone comes into your house, they should know that this is a household of God, either because things are physically written on the wall or because what you do so reflects it. And I would actually say it's a good idea to have scripture up on your walls, right? This, by the way, and I want to be careful not to get too much into eschatology. This, by the way, when we get into Revelation... And what is it that the mark of the beast is supposed to be put on? The mark of the beast was to go on the forehead and the hand. God commanded in Deuteronomy 6 that it's his word that's supposed to go there. The idea is, and whether it's a physical mark or not, whether this is supposed to be physically on my forehead or hand, regardless, the idea is that God is supposed to receive that type of veneration and worship. And if I have to give up what is for God alone to honor Nero Caesar or whoever the beast might be, a lot of people think it was Nero Caesar, Um, a lot of people might think he's still coming. In any case, the principle is the same. I better not give to Caesar or to anyone else what belongs only to God. In fact, I should be so dedicated in my worship to God that I am. it is everywhere in my life. The word of God permeates all that I do and I'm teaching it to my children. That when I lie down and when I wake up, it's everything in my life. Brothers and sisters, this is Deuteronomy 6. This is early. This is not some new thing that came up in Revelation. It's something that we see all the way through Scripture. Is everybody with me? Is this making sense? Okay. So, Worship is to be built into daily life, and the Word of God is to be central. We've already established that pretty well. So, all that said then, leading up to this little thing happening in John chapter 4, 
If you want to turn there, we're going to finish out in John chapter 4 here. And I recognize, I recognize we've covered up so much ground. Thank you all for hanging with me. It's, it's important that we cover this ground, though. And I want to set the stage for what's happening here in, uh, in John chapter 4. You have Jesus in Samaria at a well. And as we understand, it's probably during the middle part of the day. There's this woman at the well who's come at the hottest part of the day when she probably doesn't want to be there. And it's probably because she has been living a shameful life and she's not really welcome to come in the cool of the morning. So here's this woman. So Jesus is violating some pretty big social norms here. First of all, he's a Jew speaking to a Samaritan. This is all related to worship, as we will see. Second, he's speaking to a woman in public, which just wasn't generally seen as, as appropriate. Third, Jesus knows this is a woman of ill repute. It's not that she's a prostitute, but she's had something like five men. She's living with a man who is not her husband. She's not lived a wholesome kind of life. And Jesus, of course, brings this up. Now, here's another backstory related to the Samaritans. There's this big issue related to worship and how it's supposed to be done. The Samaritans have certain views about God that are sort of semi, what we would probably refer to as liberal now. Um, they're, they're worshiping in one place. The Jews are like, no, you've got to worship over here. And that's at the crux of this divide between the Jews and the Samaritans. It's more complicated than that. But it is definitely related to worship. So at verse 21 of John chapter 4, a little side note, Jesus has not publicly revealed himself to be the Messiah until this point. And he says, Jesus says to her, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour was coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. That's a, refer a reverence to you, the Samaritans, the Jews, and this whole division on worship. It says, You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. By the way, Jesus just smacks it right down. He's like, yeah, we're right. Um, like, he's like, you're wrong. We're right. You worship what you don't know. But notice there's a little bit of like, you're getting at something, though. You're worshiping what you do not know. We're worshiping what we know. This is, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called, the, he who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, this is kind of everything, brothers and sisters. You have an issue of how worship is supposed to be done and everybody is screwing it up. It's going to be really clear. The Jews did a whole lot of good stuff. They still messed up a lot. I mean, Jesus is going to have to clear the temple at least once, maybe twice, depending on how you read it. I think it's twice. He clears the temple twice because they're, they're, they're degrading God's house with thievery. You have also this issue where people, their hearts are far from God. We can see even in Isaiah a reference like, your hearts are far from me. You're doing all this stuff on the outside, but you're wrong. It's still wretched. It's not what I want. And here, as he's talking to a Samaritan woman who's getting it wrong, here he's coming from the Jews, who of course Jesus is getting it right, but he recognizes the Jews are not fulfilling the law properly. And he's saying, there's going to be a time coming and is now here 
When those who worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. And she says, yeah, basically, we need the Messiah to do that. And he says, it's me. I'm that guy. I am here for you. The centrality of all of this, hopefully, that we're getting here, is I can't worship God rightly without Jesus himself. Because what is required is spirit and truth. And outside of God's righteousness, I will suppress the truth and hate God, whether I recognize I'm doing it or not. I will suppress the truth apart from God because my spirit is dead. And without my spirit being alive, I just can't do it. Notice on the next slide, we'll see that the two criteria here are spirit and truth. What does it say? God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So if God is spirit, and yet we see in Ephesians 2 that our spirit is dead before he regenerates us. There is no way I can worship God in spirit if my spirit is dead. And for the unbeliever, your spirit is dead. You just can't worship God. You have only hope of idolatry until you've been regenerated. Second, I've got to worship him in truth. He has told us very specifically who he is and how he is to be worshipped. I don't get to make that up. This is one of the reasons, brothers and sisters, there are things in worship that would seem very expedient that we do not do because God said no. Um, It would be much more expedient from a cultural perspective if we allowed for women pastors. Because you know what? Everybody thinks that's okay. But God's pretty clear that women aren't supposed to be pastors. So we don't do that. Because God is the one who dictates how he's supposed to be worshipped. He says, Spirit and in truth, I better obey him because I've seen what happens when we don't do it the right way. Even in small incidental things, when they're moving the ark and God says, here's how you're supposed to move the ark and you're not supposed to touch it. And if you touch it, you're going to die. They're moving it the wrong way. The ark starts to fall and some guy puts his hand up with good intentions to keep it from falling over. And God strikes him down dead immediately because he's the one who tells us how he's supposed to be worshipped. And if we go outside of that, we're playing a tricky game. Right? We, see, we see people struck dead for lying to the Holy Spirit in the assembly. God doesn't screw around with worship. And so I better have my worship right. And the very first thing we see is spirit and in truth. So I better worship God as he reveals himself, and I better be spiritually alive. That places Christ at the center of it. Faithful worship, brothers and sisters, begins at regeneration. We see in Ephesians 2 that you are dead in your trespasses and sins from birth. Christ makes us alive at the moment of salvation. Your spirit comes alive, and that's how you're able to worship in spirit. It's about as simple as it gets, brothers and sisters. Faithful worship begins at regeneration. And a day is coming when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. We see in uh, Romans 14, 11, it actually says this, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall, shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. It doesn't mean that they're all going to do it in repentance and faith. It's that they will choke out the words because God is king and there is nothing they can do about it. Philippians 2, 10 and 11 says, So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I'll just make this very, very clear. A day is coming when you will give homage to God regardless, whether you want to or not. I would actually say you can maybe argue that they will do it in truth and not in spirit. 
those who are unregenerate. You might as well do what God has created you to do and worship him as he is in spirit. And the very first criteria for that is to repent and believe the gospel. So as we get ready to go into communion here, I'm just going to communicate the gospel to you. Could I get... Uh, could I get a couple of people to come up and start distributing communion and I'm going to proclaim the gospel. Thank you, brother. Um, Here's what happens in the gospel. We suppress the truth in our unrighteousness until we know God. Romans 1 refers to us as God-haters because in our sin, we don't want to believe that God is God and so we will suppress that truth even if we just kind of suppress a little bit about him so that, we, so that he's a different God than what he has revealed, still suppressing the truth. This is why, by the way, this is why I like cults like Jehovah's Witnesses. Man, they got a whole lot of things right, but they get the main stuff wrong because they don't want to believe that God is who he says he is. Mormons do the same thing. Brothers and sisters, the Catholics do the same thing because they don't want to worship God as he has revealed himself. And so it doesn't matter how close to on you are, if you deny the God of Scripture, you're, you're lost. God, knowing that he was in perfect righteousness and that could not be in relationship with sin, knew that we could not earn a way to us, and so he himself became flesh, lived a perfect life, and died to pay the penalty for our sin. We call this the atonement. He took on our sin. He gave us his righteousness. We call it the great transfer, the doctrine of imputation. Jesus paid our sin debt so that we could be restored back to God. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What happens in salvation, what happens in the gospel, is that Christ is paid for everything, and the only thing required is that you repent of sin, declare him Lord, and believe what he has done. That is the gospel. Simple as that. As we see, that is the moment your spirit becomes alive. And up until that moment, nothing you do is of any glory to God. It only brings more condemnation upon you. But at that moment, everything from that point on is faith, and God receives glory and worship for it. The gospel is that Jesus paid your sin debt and rose from the dead. It's simple as that. You get in by repenting and believing, declaring him your God. And so what we do with communion, by the way, is we're declaring that very thing. Um, I want to communicate very clearly. Um, if you don't believe that, if you have not repented and believed, please do not take communion. You are only increasing the condemnation upon you. Um, but if you have, man, join us in communion. So I'm going to pray. We're going to do this together. God, we recognize that we are we're sinful apart from you, and yet you have given us your righteousness for those who have believed. We ask that you would consecrate this, this bread and this juice as we remember what you have done for us and as we worship you in this time. We ask all this in Christ's name, amen. So on the night that Jesus was to be betrayed, he took some bread and he broke it. And he said, take, eat, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. And he said, this is the blood of my new covenant, poured out for many. Do this in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, thank you for what you have done. Um, we recognize that our worship is imperfect, but we are going to seek to worship you in spirit and in truth as you have revealed yourself 
and as you have regenerated us. So receive glory as we go on our way. May we faithfully proclaim the gospel. May we worship you as you have described uh, throughout scripture. And then, Lord, in the coming sermons, as we learn more about what it means to worship, Lord, may we increase our focus upon you. May we increase our obedience. May we increase in delight of you. And may you receive glory. In Christ's name, amen.